Father, as we set before you, we would pray that you would just envelop us with your wisdom, your Holy Spirit, your kindness, your grace, your mercy. All of these things for which you have called us to salvation. We pray, Lord, that you would enlighten us, that you would move us forward in our faith, strengthen us in our walks, give us insight, understanding, and wisdom as to your ways that we might keep them. Help us not to be confused, for we know that the enemy, Satan, is the author of confusion, but you have your ways that are orderly, right, and just. As we look at these ethical issues, I pray that you would help us to conform our views to yours. Help us not to equivocate. Help us not to parse words that we might get our way, but we may hold to your truth in its purest form. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, currently this is the fourth week on biblical ethics that we're going through. Excuse me. And it does us very little good if all we ever simply do is read and study the scriptures, but we never apply what we learn to our world and our culture. There is a movement in Christendom that we would make sure that we really don't talk about politics or ethics and we don't say anything that might disturb the churchgoer. And if you really read the scriptures for all that it has, excuse me, it is going to affect us usually negatively because it's going to tell us to do things that we don't want to do or believe things that we don't want to believe because the carnal mind is at enmity with God. It, it goes against what God has to say. And so I, I'm not trying to provide an exhaustive explanation of these issues but simply bring clarification to the biblical and ethical issues that we face today. And it is at this junction of biblical knowledge and practice that friction takes place. And usually it starts within us. And then it moves between us in the church and between us outside the church with those outside the church. Because the church simply would disagree with what the world talks about when it comes to ethical issues. Now, the guidelines that the world will provide on cultural issues will almost always conflict with solid biblical teaching. The world will propose cultural solutions and most often will wrap them in what seems to be a moral blanket. I'm going to give you some examples of this. Uh, We have compassion or we are to have compassion on the homeless and provide free housing for them for as long as they desire because it's the compassionate thing to do to give them a place to stay. And of course, it's appealing to the morality of those who want to follow Christ. Also, uh, give needles to heroin addicts so they do not get hepatitis and also provide a safe place for them to shoot up so that they, when they are high, they will be out of harm's way. That's the compassionate view, to keep them away from harm. Uh, The world will also say, don't say anything offensive because it might hurt the feelings of someone and that would not be kind And to prevent this, we will uh, enforce censorship on speech and make safe places so people won't be offended. And and you see there, do you want to offend somebody on purpose? I mean, do you walk around trying to offend people? It's not hard to do, but do you do that? No, we, we don't seek to do that. 
And that's why the world will come back at the church and say, well, you need to be kind and compassionate and keep people safe and make sure no harm comes to them. Or let's encourage children to mutilate their bodies and become sterile for the rest of their life because it prevents suicide. Have you heard that one? By the way, that is a complete and utter lie. The Heritage Foundation, let me read to you what they said about this particular subject. It said, The most thorough follow-up of sex-reassigned people extending over 30 years and conducted in Sweden where the culture is strongly supportive of the transgendered documents their lifelong mental unrest. 10 to 15 years after surgical reassignment, the suicide rate of those who had undergone sex reassignment surgery rose to 20 times that of comparable peers. Now, when I was doing research on this, and I would go to search engine, I used DuckDuckGo. I don't use Google. And I could not find a single conservative view as I went through. I I found NPR, MSM. I, I found all of these other websites that would talk about the benefits of decreasing suicide. But when the Heritage Foundation got a hold of it, and you have to know where to look, for these studies and you dive into this stuff and it's all over the place but that information is being suppressed and it's being suppressed so the world gets its way they don't want the other information out there and so these are just four examples of how the culture will cloak their agenda in what seems to be moral virtue and our job as Christians is to see through the deceit and God willing we will do so Just as a side note, a parenthetical thought here. When you watch the news, now, I don't know what news you may watch, or if you watch news at all. I don't watch news on television at all. Uh, But I have seen websites put these things up where you take Fox 5 in San Diego, and then you take all the Fox stations, the affiliates, across the United States, And what they'll do, they have a segment on some national issue of cultural importance. And they'll start with one Fox station and they start talking and then they'll show, they'll bring another one into the picture and they will be reading the exact same words. And they keep on doing that until they get about 25 or 30 Fox stations and they are all saying the same thing at the same speed, the same time in their broadcasts. And so you think that the information we're getting comes from a local source. If it's a local news story, it does. But if it's a national news story, it does not come from a local source. It comes from a group of people, two or three people. And that's an attempt to sway the information, even on a quote-unquote conservative news site. This is also the case on liberal or progressive uh, Marxist uh, websites that have news or television stations. They do the same thing. They have their talking points, and those talking points go out by or through a central location to make sure it sways the culture. And that's what we have to be aware of. Whenever you watch any news broadcast, whenever you read anything, you have to think biblically about what's being said to filter out what is of Satan, what is of the world, and what is of Christ that we have to lift up. And we have to stand up and say, no, this is the right thing to do. And what the world is saying, no, that's the wrong thing. So questions that have been submitted 
You know, the goal of this series is to lead us into thinking biblically about everything for the benefit of ourselves and also our culture. And the questions that have been submitted, we uh, just attacked the orphans and the widows, and it expanded into a larger question. Should we take care of just anybody or should the government take care of just anybody? And when it came to taking care of orphans and widows, of course, we had some guidelines there. Family is to work to provide for those in need if there is family. Second, if there is no family, a widow is in need, the church should step in and help only those who are incapable of helping themselves. And third, if anyone asks for benevolence, err on the side of grace, not justice. Unless you know something that would prohibit you from doing that, I say err on the side of that grace and mercy. Ask God for wisdom in this because there are a lot of scammers. People, We've had people come through the church like that. They just keep on going to the church and asking for help. And, and they don't tell anybody. And they go from one person to the next or one couple to the next. And maybe one time they'll come to the church. And they just go through the body. And that happens, and they're wolves in sheep's clothing. And fourth, we should teach others that benevolence, giving of an ongoing income, is never good for those who are not truly in need. We want to teach people how to fish and not just give them the fish, so to speak. Now, there was one question that I didn't answer last week just because of time that I'm going to answer this week on this. And this deals with the wider question, uh, shouldn't we just help everyone who is in need? Well, before I answer that question, I'm going to predicate it on a few things. And let me say it another way. Should a disciple of Jesus receive and accept welfare, EBT, or any other government assistance for living? This is something we should look at. Should we participate in that if it's available to us? After all, it's the tax dollars going to pay for that, for those people who are indigent that that aren't able to care for themselves. So what would the Bible have to say about that? Well, the predicate that I'd like to bring to you is, first, I'm not going to pass judgment on anybody who receives any type of income from the federal or state governments. I'm just not going to do it. And I'll tell you why in a minute. I don't think it's my place to do that. Nor do I think it's really anybody's business uh, to make that kind of judgment. Second, I believe that our government system of support is hopelessly corrupt. I don't think that there's really any way to fix it. And usually the attempts to fix things like this, to help those who are in need, usually completely backfires and has the opposite effect. You know, it was uh, Ronald Reagan, he had two quotes. One quote was, the most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. The second one is, government is not the solution to the problem, the government is the problem. Now, I believe God has ordained governments. I believe the governments are set up for our good. But do I believe they become corrupt over time? Yes, I do. Just like the church. Over time, unless you're vigilant and just really watching what the Bible has to say and putting it into practice and not compromising, the church will also become corrupt. Look at the church when it started. 
It was great. It was wonderful. There were some problems in the beginning. Ananias and Sapphira, the Lord judged them. There were other people that were falling asleep or dying because they did not observe the Lord's Supper properly in the book of 1 Corinthians. And then the 3rd and 4th century, you had the Catholic Church start, and then they started worrying about money. And they started charging for indulgences and paying off your sins and getting time out of purgatory. And it became a huge conglomerate of an organization with tremendous power. And if you read anything about the popes through church history, and I have just, you know, one of the popes had their own executioner. And it shows the garb of the executioner, how he had a hood and he had a, a sword to kill people. And that's what the pope would do and it just completely corrupted the church and of course there were new venues for the church to spread out with the advent of Martin Luther and the reformers and because of them we're here today even though we wouldn't hold to all those doctrines it's just through happenstance that the church has a tendency to become corrupt unless we watch diligently and trust in God So going back to the government, the welfare, you know, when the government decided from 1935 to 1997 to give to those single mothers assistance when they had children, they thought by what they were doing, at least some of them thought by what they were doing, they would decrease single parenthood, single motherhood, and they would increase the desire for men and women to be married and raise children. This is what happened. While it sought originally to reduce fatherless households and encourage families to stay together, the ultimate result was the opposite. It increased the number of fatherless children. Biological fathers were discouraged from remaining with the mothers of their children while increasing the likelihood of non-biological males that would live with the children's biological mother. In other words, the biological father was discouraged from being in the household, but a non-biological father was encouraged to move in because of that. And that would not be the child's father, which led to a bunch of problems. It incentivized women to have more children out of wedlock. The more children a woman had as a single mother, the more she could receive and support from the program. So what she would do is just have a lot of children and she would get a lot of money as long as she didn't marry because there were penalties if you got married because the man was expected to chip in. All it did was force the biological fathers out of the household. So that's one example and Clinton changed it to another program, but that's one example how it increased fatherless households and especially in the black community which did them no favors whatsoever now this is also creeping into the white communities and asian communities although the asian communities tend to be a little more stable now we have also we live in a fallen world and this is the predicate to what i'm going to say about this we live in a fallen world that will not be straightened out until christ comes back that's just the way it is We can do all we can, but because of the sinfulness of the hearts of the people that are in control of these programs, the welfare, the EBT, all of that, it's just never going to be exactly right. The closer we get to a community of people taking care of other people, the better it gets. 
the farther we get away from the family being the provider for somebody who is down on their luck, so, so to speak, the farther we get away from that, the worse we are going to get. Now, if you just look at our culture, do we have a tendency to be closer together in our day and age or farther apart? I saw a little picture this morning as I was doing some research, and it was showing what we used to do as kids. And it showed like four boys, and they had little metal trucks, and they were making roads and tunnels, and the caption said, this is what we did when we were young. Just the opposite today, you put a child in front of a tablet, and you know, you're know you on your phone while they're on the tablet, and we're just preoccupied with everything else where we didn't just go out and play and do things. And of course, girls at that time, my girls, they would have little tea sets and they actually had a little uh, plastic uh, little tykes oven you know and they would they would do stuff like that and that was and then we got videos you know charity church mouse and it was just something that gravitated their eyes towards the tube and you know it was just some church songs that we wanted uh, them to have but it's not like that today so the tendency in our culture is to separate to not be involved we used to have to dial this thing that was on the wall to talk to somebody we couldn't send a text to anyone or when we had the beepers you know you oh, i gotta go find a phone booth you, know, you guys know what a phone booth is we would go find a phone booth to call and it would take us away if we were outside it would take us away from what we were doing you know, and then the text turned into, or the, the beeper turned into a text beeper, and you could get a message, and you could determine if you wanted to answer it then. But it's the idea, you don't have to be around, you don't have to personally communicate with somebody, you don't have to see how they're doing and maybe ask them, hey, what's going on in your life? All of that is gone now. And it's just some tube or some phone that we look at. And that's not good for us. And there are psychological problems. You know, some of these CEOs of Facebook and Instagram, they, they say they don't let their own kids get on Facebook or Meta because it's psychologically damaging. And they know that, yet they'll go before Congress and they'll tell Congress, no, we're, we're doing everything we can to stop this. And yet the profit motive is the thing that actually moves them forward. So what do we do with this? If somebody says... Well, pastor or elder or deacon, should I get on AFDC? That's not the program now, but you get the drift. Or should I go on welfare? Is it okay to receive that? Again, I'm not making a judgment about that. Well, number one, anyone who can provide for themselves and their families should not receive welfare from the government. That's just the bottom line. If you're able to do it yourself, to take care of yourself... That's the priority. That's what God would have us do. Based on what? Based on 1 Thessalonians 4.11. I'm sure you have read this before. It says, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. That's pretty clear language. We're not to be dependent on anybody else if we are capable of taking care of ourselves. And that would include government agencies. Take care of yourself and you win the respect of outsiders because of your industriousness. That's what God would tell us to do. Secondly, 
If there are family members that can assist with income, that should be the first resort. That, that's the first thing that you would go to. Now, there are issues with that. But 1 Timothy 5.3, and again, I believe you are familiar with this, says, give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should first learn to put their religion into practice by caring for their own widows. It doesn't say widows. It says family. And the word in the Greek is actually ancestors. So what it's saying in the passage is, widows who are widows indeed, the family needs to take care of them. And anybody else in the family that might be an ancestor, we're supposed to take care of them too, if they can't take care of themselves. It goes on to say, and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. So those are the direct, lucid scriptures that tell us, if we're able to take care of ourselves, do it. Don't seek assistance from anyone else. Now that might mean we do without some stuff because we can't afford certain things. You know, uh, people that are on assistance, I remember somebody in the church used to be in leadership and we've had several people come through the church that were very needy, that really could not provide for themselves. And this one particular case that I can recall over, over a decade ago, maybe even more, there was a, a young man, he really couldn't take care of himself, so he's on government assistance, and one of the leaders in the church went over to their house and saw their house and everything that they had. Had a full, it wasn't an Xbox, it was some type of system like that. It was like a 55-inch screen TV and just all the toys and stuff that somebody would want in their kind of position. And the leader in the church thought to himself, I don't have all that stuff, and yet we're providing that for everyone else and remember you've heard me mention this previously the poor in our country are really not poor it used to be food programs but now it's called food insecurity who does not have food insecurity i gotta go to the store i don't have quite enough food i'm feeling insecure about my food levels at home so i'm gonna go and i'm gonna get some food and so they've changed the narrative in our country There's no reason that somebody would starve. No reason whatsoever. And so in order to keep the government program going, they change it from food programs for those who are starving or hungry to food insecurity, and look what it's gotten us. In our country, we have an obesity epidemic just because of what we eat and what's available to us. And and it's difficult for us as a society to break away from that. We become, quote-unquote, addicted to that type of lifestyle. And it's so hard once you get on that type of program to get off of that type of program. Now, at this point, you're going, wow, you're, you're speaking pretty tough here. Look, you don't have an argument with me. You have an argument with Scripture. This is what Scripture has to say. And it's not my job to be offensive, although the words that sometimes I speak are offensive because they're the truth. And remember, I've said it often, the truth is offensive. And doing what is right is hard. It's hard to do what is right because the flesh does not want to do it. I struggle just like you to do what is right because my flesh says, no, don't do that. Even in the simplest things, get up and read. No, I'm tired. 
I don't, I'm falling asleep again. I don't want to get up early. You, you fight that in the flesh. It just does that. Now, if children are given the responsibility of taking care of their parents so that they don't go get on some type of assistance, might this be a burden to the children and grandchildren? Oh, yes. It'll be tough. It may even be an onerous task. But as I just said, doing what is right is difficult. And see, what happens is, if we start trusting in the government, who are we not trusting? We're not trusting in Christ to take care of us. And he is totally able. And he promised to take care of us. He promised to give us food. He promised to give us clothing. He didn't promise to give us shelter all the time. But he did promise to take care of us. He talked about the lilies of the field. He talked about the sparrows of the air. And God took care of both of them. And so I think we need to be reminded that we're not to trust in men. We're not to trust in government. We're not to trust in entities which are out there to provide for us. We're to trust in God. Now, might he use that to help us? It's possible. He might. Now, in my opinion is, and I, I state that in quotes, my opinion. I want to let you know what scripture is and what my opinion is. Most adult children in our culture today would not want to work harder or hard enough to provide for their parents and grandparents, not only for themselves, but for them. Because that's a lot of work, and there's so much of other things that we could be involved in, so many other things that we could give our attention to. And they may not even be able to generate enough for themselves or their parents. That's a real possibility. Most would probably say, the children of today, go to the government, it's available. Just go ahead, tap into that. It's right there. It's a program that will help us all. Well, what if the children are unwilling or they're unable? Should the church become the guardian or the benefactor over everyone who cannot provide for themselves? Should they come to the church then? The answer is no. I don't believe they should come to the church the church would cease to exist if that were the case. The number of people who are in need is endless. Scripture says, the poor you, have, you will have with you always. That means there's always going to be abundance of people who are poor. There are not going to be more rich people than poor people. There are always going to be more poor people, people who are not able to provide themselves, than there are going to be rich people. Well, the task of the church is not to become a financial safety net for those who are in need. That's not the task of the church. The task of the church is to glorify God the Father by promoting Jesus Christ and the salvation he offers through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what we're about. Do we help others that are desperately in need? Yes, we do. We have compassion with that. But is that the primary purpose and goal of the church? No. And sadly, throughout history, the church has turned itself into, in some sectors, just a social program. Let's just clothe and feed and help those who can't help themselves. And they forget about the gospel. You know, I am always sad to hear that if there are programs available, especially sponsored by the church, and if we don't give the gospel, what are we doing? We're simply helping somebody to survive physically, but we do nothing about their spiritual welfare. That's just not good. And, and then if, if it's an ecumenical movement, 
you know, I, I went, I think I told you, I went to one ecumenical meeting where you had a Catholic and a Lutheran and a Seventh-day Adventist and I was there and it only took one time. And then I wasn't there anymore just because, it, you know, if you say things that go against the traditions and you ask them all, can we just focus on what scripture says? Even that is an offense. Yeah. Did you guys hear about Jack Hibbs? How he went and was invited by Mike Johnson to give the prayer in the Congress of the United States? Oh. Well, first he mentioned Jesus Christ. That was just wrong. People were offended. And then he talked about the sins of the nation. Oh, that was wrong. He shouldn't have said that. He said like five or, Patty said, what, seven things, nine things like that. And people just got offended. And boy, did they let Mike Johnson know it. That what is this guy talking about Jesus Christ and the sins of the nation? What are you going to do? That, that's where we are as a country. You can't even mention Christ. You can mention God in a generic sense, but just don't get too specific. And so in an ideal world, families would remain together and help each other. Everyone would have a life insurance policy so that if they pass, family members would be provided for. Everyone would adhere to 1 Timothy 5, 3 through 4 and 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12 that I previously quoted to you. Everyone would love their neighbor as themselves, relying on and helping each other with no strings attached. Government would not, sh- not attempt to enslave everyone by overtaxing and, and giving the money, distributing it to others. And yada, 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 a technical term. You, you know, just, just, we could go on infinitum if it was a perfect world. And it is not a perfect world. It's not an ideal world. Now, in an imperfect world... May it be necessary to receive some of that? Yeah, it it might be. And I'm going to be the last person that says, you ought not to do that, that that is sinful behavior. I think that's wrong to say that. It's just like if somebody came to me, and they have. If they come to me and said, should I get a divorce? Do you think I should ever counsel that person to get a divorce? The answer is no. I will never counsel somebody to divorce. Might I counsel them to separate for a little bit? You know, if there's abuse going on or something like, yeah, I might do that. But I will never counsel somebody to get a divorce. Just because God hates divorce. I'm not going to counsel somebody to do what God hates. And so the same thing with being on some type of income from the government. It's really not addressed in Scripture specifically. It doesn't say, thou shalt not have welfare. We don't even call it welfare anymore. Why? Because somebody might be offended. We, we come up with other names for the program's assistance. We want to change the language so nobody is taken aback and offended like the people in Congress. They don't want to be offended. And yet they offend the citizenry every single day. You know, and, and so there's a, a double standard which is there. So as a pastor, I'm not supposed to make such decisions for people. If people come to me and they ask a biblical question, a, a question on some theology or maybe a biblical ethic, I'll point them in the right direction. I'll tell them what scripture has to say. And then it's incumbent upon that person to act in accordance. Now, if, if someone chooses that they want to get on the help from the government or the state 
I'm not going to say no. I'm going to say one caveat. After all, who am I to judge another man's servant according to Romans 14.4? I leave it up to the conscience of the recipient and the consciences of the extended family. That's where I leave it. And whatever the decision they make, it's their decision to make. And again, no judgment for me on that. So going on, the next subject here, war. What about war? You know, um, I think all of us, most of us in here, are old enough to remember the Vietnam War. Uh, My brother uh, was graduating in 1973 when the war ended. And I, at that time, I, 1970, I would be coming up and I'm looking at the draft too and you had to register for the draft and prior to uh, becoming of age. And, and so do you guys remember Kent State where the National Guard was called in and the girl, she's laying next to the body of somebody and they took the rifle out the National Guard and just shot one of the students and the student died? I forget how many people died, if it was just that one or if there were others. And there was a whole anti-war movement for Vietnam. And how did that end? Well, first, Walter Cronkite, remember him? Walter Cronkite came back and said, quote, this war is lost, is what he said. That swayed the whole country. A nighttime newsman swayed the whole country. The shift in power going from the Republicans to the Democrats, we exited. People were murdered because of our exit, by the way. It repeated again in Iraq, Afghanistan, where we just pulled out. People died as a result of those actions, the anti-war movement, we're not doing this anymore. And I have been to Cambodia, the aftermath of all of that, and seen the killing fields and walked around from station to station with the headset on, and you just walk away from that place weeping, and they have a tower, and one of them full of the skulls of people. And it's probably three stories high, and you walk up, it's all glass, and you see the skulls of all the people that they murdered in these killing fields. And so there is this move to say, we ought not to go to war. War is immoral. We need to practice pacifism and never raise a hand against anybody or kill anybody for any reason. Is that the truth we're supposed to hold to? Or is the truth that, no, we are supposed to go to war? Now, ask yourself the question, is there corruption with the industry of war in the world? Yes, there is. Absolutely, there is corruption there. The scriptures say there is a time for war. It does in Ecclesiastes. It says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 8, and this comes from Solomon, the wisest king who ever lived, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. So he just recognized the way things were in the world was just stating about them. This, this is the way things are. And then he would make comments about that. Like, what do we do at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes? He goes, you're not going to change anything. This Bill's paraphrase. 
You're not going to change anything in the book of Ecclesiastes that he talks about. So what do you do at the end? Love God and find enjoyment under your labor or in your labor under the sun. That's it. That's all you can do because this is the way of the world which is controlled by Satan. And even Solomon was able to recognize that. So there are times that you must go to war, is what he's saying, and a time that you must have peace. Now remember, even Jesus told his disciples to buy swords. And he did this so that they might exercise a self-defense mode and also the defense for others. I will read it to you. Luke chapter 22, verse 35. Then Jesus asked them, When I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. Verse 36 of chapter 22. He said to them, But now if you have a purse, take it. But also a bag. If you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. Now Jesus wouldn't tell somebody to just get a sword to cut meat. He's telling them, get a sword to defend yourself. And if you're going to use a sword, it's like a police officer. A police officer is not told to shoot to wound. They're told to shoot to kill. Because what can happen is it can turn back on you and you might be dead. And so that's how police officers are trained. And some people say, well, why don't you shoot him in the leg or something like that? Well, if you could end up dead if you do that. And so that's why they train police officers. They carry a gun, a gun in order to kill if necessary. Not that they're supposed to all the time, but if necessary. That's what Jesus was telling his disciples. If you're going to use a sword, use it properly and use it for self-defense only if you have to as a last resort. Proverbs 24, 11 and 12 says, Rescue those being led astray to death. Hold back those staggering toward slaughter. If you say, but we knew nothing about this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay each person according to what he has done? To, to summarize what it's saying there, if you see somebody who's being led away to slaughter that is going to be killed, we collectively have a responsibility to stop it, to rescue them. And if we do not participate in rescuing them, God will call us to account. He will say, why didn't you step in and stop that? That's why I believe the churches, most churches are pro-life. We're stopping the slaughter of the innocents which are out there. So when it, it comes to this idea, should we be pacifists? Jesus didn't teach that. Neither did the Bible. Now, are there wars going on in the world? The answer is an obvious, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes. There's Ukraine, there's Israel, there's South Africa. There's probably 30 different conflicts in South Africa. Myanmar or Burma, that is, uh, right now everybody has to register for the draft there. A uh, despotic uh, or a, a dictatorship has been set up there. It's just a terrible place around the world. And of course, there's all kinds of violence in our streets here in the major cities. Now, how are we to evaluate our, our involvement in these other conflicts? Is there any way that we could be involved in all of them? No, we can't. It's just impossible. 
even though they were, we are a strong and mighty country, there's no way that we could help everyone in every conflict around the world. Well, from the Bible, we have established that there is a time for war in Ecclesiastes. We have established that we bear some responsibility as a nation when there is a slaughter taking place. And over the centuries, the church has given thought to the issues of going to war. This is not something new. The Christian tradition of a just war theory began in the 5th century with Augustine. He started to contemplate these things. Is there ever a time where you would go to war and that war could be called a just war? And in the 13th century, Thomas Aquinas built on and expanded what Augustine thought on justice and warfare. So the church has gone over this for centuries. It is not something that is a Johnny-come-lately issue. Now, there's principles of just ad bellum, which means the right to war. And there are six criteria that the church has come up with that must be satisfied before entering a war or war can be considered as being just. I'm going to read them to you. The number one is a just cause. There must be a just and proper reason for going to war. Some of the justifiable reasons include self-defense, protecting the innocent, restoring human rights wrongly denied, and assisting an ally in their self-defense. So there's this concept of the just war. Secondly, the proportionate cause. The good of going to war must outweigh the destruction and death that will be caused by warfare. In other words, going to war must prevent more evil and suffering than it is expected to cause. Number three, right intention. Our reasons and motives for engaging in warfare must be noble and in line with the ethic of Christian love. We can go to war to right a wrong or restore a just peace, but not to restore our national pride or to seek revenge against an enemy. So proportionate cause, right intention, just cause. Fourthly, right authority. War can only be authorized by a legitimate government authority. This means it has to be a governing authority we would recognize as fitting the criteria of Romans 13. So it can only be a government that says we're going to war. It can't be an individual or a little militia. Fifth, reasonable chance of success. The initiation of warfare brings violence pain and suffering the cost is only worth paying if it will as we noted outweigh the destruction and death that will be caused by warfare if there is no reasonable chance of success in warfare there can be no reasonable chance of using warfare to restore a just peace the last one is last resort Engaging in warfare must be the last reasonable and workable option for addressing problems. Any peaceful alternatives, such as diplomacy or nonviolent political pressure, must first be exhausted before going to war. Now, I think these are good. And this is what the church historically has come up with based on Scripture and what Scripture teaches. That's just summarizing for us. Now, let's put that to today the Ukraine war is it just or is it unjust 
have we entered into this, supporting this along with NATO, with a view to win the war or just extend the war? Does Putin has, have justification for actually attacking Ukraine? Did you guys see the Tucker Carlson interview? I did. I was holding it in my hand. Patty was sitting there and a couple of times I had to stay awake to listen to the whole thing. And Putin started out with a history lesson for 20 minutes saying why he had a right to the land. When he was all done, it was easy to conclude he did not have a biblical right to go in and start committing these heinous crimes which are there. And the perpetration of evil is just off the scales as far as the Russians attacking the Ukraines. What about the Ukraines attaching, attacking the Russians? There's equally war crimes on both sides. There would be. Are we funding it in such a way that we would have a reasonable chance of success? All I can say is that from the outside, judging it biblically, we have not entered this war to end it once and for all. We have only been given little by little armaments that are necessary so that Ukraine will not lose, but they will also not win. And for that, I think this is an unjust war. We're in this for no reason. What would have happened if you stepped back and just said, okay, we can't stop Putin, too many lives will be lost. If we just let him go in, how many lives would have been spared? Probably thousands, maybe even a tens of thousands. Even though they would have been under the rule of Putin, the lives would have been spared. Russian lives. And, and did you see when the war started, all the people going to the airports in Russia, all the young men to exit the country so that they wouldn't fight in the war? Now, you can make judgments about that, but apparently there is this sense of it's just not right. And then Ukraine was dragging people out of their apartments to fight in the war. And right now they're saying that uh, Putin's going to win. And yet we're supposed to be pouring more money into it. Now, if, if you try to really get to the bottom of what is going on there, $113 billion has been spent on this war. How much of it actually has ended up in Ukraine? I just read an article in Washington Post. It said 90% of it has remained in the United States. Who's it been given to? The arms manufacturers. What do the arms manufacturers do? They give money to the politicians. What do the politicians do? Vote for more war. And, and it just goes around. So are we culpable in this? We are. As a nation... And this is what Jack Hibbs, what, one of the things that he would talk about, I'm sure, is this is one of the sins of our nation. This is what we are doing. We are contributing to the death unnecessarily. Even though there would still be death, it's on a scale that is off the scale, so to speak. Now, am I opinionated? Yeah, I am. They told us in seminary that you need to know what you believe because you have to communicate that to people. You can't be wishy-washy. You have to be direct. And if there's anything that I'm talking about here, if I have not backed it up with scripture or a scriptural principle and somebody points that out to me, I will recant. I will pull it back and say, you're absolutely right and I will tell you publicly. But 
with what's going on with the war there, I think it's, we have sinned as a nation doing this. And whether there's corruption, you know, if you look on the internet, you try to find out, you get to the bottom of this stuff, you can't really get to the bottom of it. But some people are saying, well, Zelensky bought, a, in France, he bought a $35 million home. And no, it's in California and it's $20 million. And no, it's in Florida and it's $20 million. And his wife is getting cosmetic surgery. And, you know, it's just, is it true? Is it not true? And if you go to the, leftist websites like Snopes they say oh no it's not true and if you go to the right websites they say absolutely it's true you're never going to get to the bottom of it never but one thing is clear it's unclear it is not solid we we do not have a good foot to stand on so that's one war well what about Israel is Israel's war a just war. Well, how did they enter the war? They were attacked. They were attacked and they're trying to survive. Now they, they use this phrase. Hamas is an existential threat to the survival of all Jews, which I believe. I believe, and Hamas has said it several times, as well as Hezbollah, as well as Iran or Persia. They want the Jews obliterated. Quote, unquote, Ahmadinejad, he said, wipe Israel off the map. They are producing maps now. They get rid of Israel, and it just says Palestine on it. And that's what's being taught to many Arab children today. And what does it mean from the river to the sea? If you ask college students, they have no idea what you're talking about. But it's from the Jordan River, which separates the country of Jordan with Israel, from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. They're saying that it belongs to the quote-unquote Palestinians. That's just a made-up name. There is no Palestinian heritage which are there. A lot of them are Egyptian. A lot of them are Jordanian. But there are no quote-unquote Palestinian or a Palestinian race of people. And so they came in and they slaughtered. And I, I will not repeat to you some of the things that these evil men did. The raping and, and such. I can speak about it in generic terms. And the murdering and how they murdered, especially the women and the children. Just absolutely horrific. And so they want to wipe out not just Israel, but all Jews. When they say from the river to the sea... They are promoting genocide. Get rid of the entire race, just like Hitler did back in World War II. Just like the Babylonians didn't want to get rid of them completely, and they were a judgment by God, and the Assyrians, the same thing. They came in. God still wanted them to survive, but these entities from our history and current day, they want to completely wipe out the Jews from the face of the earth as far as a genealogical record is concerned. To do that would violate what God says. And so is the war just to go in there? Yes. Are they just to go in and say, we have to completely wipe out Hamas and then this will stop? There was once a wise commentator that said, our world is ruled by the use of force. And it is. That's just a a fact. Like you could put that in the book of Ecclesiastes. It is run 
by the use of force. That's how things happen. When you take away the force, like the force of government and uh, the book of Romans chapter 13, the hearts of the people come up with schemes. It says this in the book of Proverbs too. They, They come up with ways of doing evil if there is not retribution on evildoers. I mean, just look at California. You know, you can steal up to $1,000 at any one place. So that means you can go to several places during the day, steal $1,000 worth of stuff, and you're not even going to be prosecuted anymore. So what happens to the people? They are filled with schemes to do evil. Look at Oakland. All the stores are shutting down in Oakland. People are complaining about it. The people that live in the communities are like, what are we going to do? Where are we going to get some food? And stores are closing down left and right. Look at San Francisco. It's becoming a ghost town up in San Francisco. All because there is a refusal to carry out um, punishment against evildoers, crimes. And even some of the leftists who are in government are now saying, maybe that was a little too far left to allow people to steal up to $1,000. It's actually $950 or whatever it might be. And I've actually witnessed it in San Diego. I was in Home Depot one night and I was getting stuff and I see this guy coming and he has this big coat on and he's, he's running towards the big door exit in El Cajon. He's coming towards me where I am. And I'm watching him, and he starts picking up speed, and he starts hunching down, and he's got something in his coat, and he just zips out. Just goes right out, doesn't pay for anything. I go to the electrical department. I want to get some wire, some 12-2 or 12-3 or 14-2. It's, it's just Romex wire. And I get there now, and there's a whole cage there. And I ask the guy, I said, we can't even get the, the wire anymore, huh? He goes, No. He says that guys are coming in and just grabbing whole rolls of copper wire and running out. And it's like, okay, well, and if we don't stop them, what's going to happen? Everything will be caged. Uh, who is it? Al Sharpton said, my toothpaste is caged up. Whatever he said. He can't even get his toothpaste. And so he's recognizing how bad it is. It is so bad. And are we going to change it? Are we going to speak up and say, this is wrong? Are we supposed to do that? Do we have a responsibility to do that? Yes, we do. So digressing back to Israel, they are in a a state where they have to defend their very existence and people want to wipe them out. They have just cause for a just war and we have the right to help them. But in our country, you can't give money to Israel unless you give money to Ukraine as well and then there's the other side you can't give money to Ukraine and Israel unless you take care of the border and so where are we we're at a stalemate all because of politics all because of power not because of doing what is right yeah, just another parenthetical thought here on politics he's talking about politics again <sighs> Carl DeMaio and Andrew Hayes have you guys gotten any flyers on those two guys? <laughs> I mean, I'm getting repeat flyers on those guys. Andrew Hayes is saying, Carl DeMaio, he's an anti-Trumper. And, you know, Andrew Hayes, he's an establishment guy. And I hold these things up and I go, there are lies going on here. Somebody is trying to tell me what to do and, and ruin the life of the other person. You guys have to judge is the establishment trying to fool you? Is Carl DeMaio wrong? Should he not be elected because he's gay? What, what's going on here? I mean, you're going to have to decide. 
You know, I, I can't really tell you who to vote I, or who to vote for. I have my opinions, and if you want my opinions, I'll give them to you after I fill out my ballot, you know, what's going on. I've had people do that. Who did you vote for? And they sent me an email. Okay, I'll tell them who I voted for. I, I don't hold back too much on that. But, but it's this idea, it's our job to hold these people to account. Patty and I, we have several discussions, especially when it comes to this idea of ethics. And we sit there, we're, we're going at it. You know, well, what do you think? No, I don't think we ought to do it. I think we ought to do that. Well, this is what the Bible says. Yeah, but I don't think it's... And we're just, we go back and forth with this. It's a healthy discussion. It's good. You know, it keeps me centered, I believe, where I need to be. And, of course, she always believes that I'm right, so it works out well. <laughs> Sorry, honey. <laughs> So, so anyhow, you know, we, we talk about these things and, and it's our job to hold to these truths as the Bible spells it out. And, and we're supposed to hammer these things out as believers and use the scripture to guide and define what we're supposed to hold to. So the conclusion of this and the war, as I get to the right spot, God, hold on. That was my mistake. First, I finished up euthanasia last time. This idea of... Hold on. i got to get my space again here. Okay, there we are. There is a time for war. A time for a just war. And we're supposed to all judge if our leaders are treating it right. If that's what we're supposed to do. There are times where biblical conditions uh, for going to war are based in absolute truth and the right and wrong. We must be able to determine to the best of our ability if we have moral leaders with pure motives whenever getting involved in a war to stop evil. I believe to be a pacifist is not a moral stand in the face of total annihilation of a population. We're not supposed to do that, just stand by. And by the way, a famous name that you will know that was a pacifist. This is what he said. Nothing will end war unless people themselves refuse to go to war. He also said, oh, I don't have his second one here. Another person, by the way, that was Albert Einstein. He was a pacifist. George Orwell, 1984, you know him? Pacifism is objectively pro-fascist. He was against pacifism. Uh, David Limbaugh the brother of Rush Limbaugh, pacifism in the face of war is not only irresponsible, it is immoral. Refusing to meet force with force in the name of peace will beget not peace, but further death and destruction, the very violence the pacifists seek to avoid. And so this is our task. Stand up for the truth. If you guys disagree with that, go to the Bible. Look up the verses. Get the stories there. Point them out to me. I will correct it. But if it is the truth, if you understand what God has for us here, stand up for it. Proclaim it when given the opportunity. Sway people all you can into the ways of righteousness. And do not fail to open your mouth when you have the opportunity. For this pleases God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your straightforward attitudes that are communicated to us in Scripture what is right, what is wrong, what is moral, what is immoral. Help us to be purveyors of this truth. Help us to stand firm when the winds of change blow through the culture. 
And help us to be that witness, that city set on a hill, the light that is not put under a bushel. And with the help of your Holy Spirit and the perseverance that you provide, we will carry out your will. In Jesus' name, the church said, please stand.